Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. Amanda Armstrong will discuss trans politics, why the right is obsessed with the issue and other issues of gender and sexuality. And at the bottom of the hour, Alfredo Sadfilo returns to discuss the prospects for Brazil after the fascist Jair Bolsonaro won the presidential election. What are we to make of the Trump administration's attempts to reverse protections for trans people that were promulgated by Obama a couple of years ago? Many people have greeted this move as a distraction, an attempt to rile up an already enraged base even further in the run-up to the midterm elections. Is that right? I don't think so. I think issues around gender and sexuality are core to the right's worldview. And as we'll hear in the next segment, this was highly visible in the Brazilian presidential election as well. And, as we heard a couple of weeks ago, it was central to the rights appeal in the provincial elections in Quebec. For a closer look at these issues, here's Amanda Armstrong. She's a historian of labor, gender, and social protest who teaches at Fordham University. Amanda Armstrong. These Trump administration proposals, what will they do? What will the practical effects be on uh, trans people? It's hard to know kind of how far they'll go and what effect they will have. But essentially potentially any federal, federally mediated interactions will involve trans people sort of not having access to rights that they would have if trans existence were recognized legally. And so that can take the form of um, interactions with various state bureaucracies, um, welfare agencies, schools, health services, yeah, that anticipated my next question. So what the federal government does has a substantial influence on what happens at the state and local level. That's right. Yeah. And part of the concern would be situations where federal oversight or funding is involved. The other thing to say about it, though, is that, and this is something, this is a point that Dean Spade has made, the other effect of this kind of administrative reform would be in empowering kind of lower level bureaucrats in federal institutions, but not only, to interpret the law in ways that are unsympathetic to gender-variant people. Well, we've seen uh, things that Trump says uh, encouraging all kinds of terrible things. So uh, this uh, would just be another one of those, wouldn't it? I think that's right. Yeah. So, so it's, under, it's important to understand the kind of formal legal effects, and those are somewhat up in the air, but then to also see this as part of a an attack and an empower and a kind of call to violence or a call to discrimination. Uh, the rights that uh, were promulgated at the federal level just came out of what executive orders from the Obama administration, for the most part, and um, kind of administrative agency reforms. So those are um, very easily reversible. Yeah, exactly, and that's that's where they're kind of targeting, I guess you could say, and. Do you have a sense of why trans issues have achieved the salience they have in recent years, both you know, the, the struggle uh, for acceptance, um, but also um, you know, this, this, this reaction? Is it the increase in numbers? or what, What's responsible for this increased political and cultural salience of trans issues? Yeah, I think there are a lot of different ways to answer that. And, and I'm going to give kind of a partial response. And there, there are many factors that could be pointed to. You have a kind of long-standing trans movement um, that really took off in the context of the 70s. Of course, um, the street transvestites action revolutionaries, um, Sylvia Rivera and Marcia Johnson are the best-known figures um, in that broader kind of post-Stonewall context. So you have a trans movement from the 70s. In the 90s, it 
was revitalized in various ways. And there were a number of trans anti-poverty campaigns in terms of people um, pushing for access to the Christopher Street Piers or defending incarcerated trans people. Um, and so, you know, this is a longstanding movement that I think made some strides and breakthroughs in ways that um, mirror the breakthroughs that the gay rights or gay and lesbian rights movements um, made in the 2000s. So I'd say that is probably the explanation for the salience of trans issues. But in terms of the configuration of the debate these days, what we're seeing is under the Obama administration, there were some moves that the administration as well as some businesses made to recognize trans people, right? And the the nascent far right, this kind of white nationalist right, is trying to kind of configure the debate as one between them who have the interests of the kind of working class majority at heart, on the one hand, against a left or a liberal force that is more concerned with marginal cultural issues. And so trans issues are sort of framed by the right uh, as one of those kind of less consequential cultural issues. Well, we also see people on the left, unfortunately, making the same argument. Yes. And, and I think that that's the, that, that that's partly why the right is able to sort of um, kind of advance this, this line. And, and those on the left who make that kind of argument, I think, are only sort of strengthening that, that framing of that only serves the interests of the right. And so the task for the left would be in this moment would be, as I, as I said, to link the interests of um, trans people with the broader interests that, of course, are shared in many ways um, of uh, the working classes and oppressed communities. So to sort of have a politics that's able to advance social and economic transformation across a range of different domains at once. Do you have any idea where this is coming from? This doesn't seem like a top concern of Trump's, but you never know. Um, but are there, was it Pence, the Christians in the administration? What What is uh, pushing this development? Yeah, you know, um, one thing about kind of anti-trans politics these days, I'd say more or less since 2016, is that they've been a kind of occasion for a finding of common cause between Breitbart conservatives, these sort of white nationalist formations, and the Christian conservatives. And the reason for that, I suppose, is that from the Christian conservative side, a kind of anti-trans politics follows from their defeat on gay marriage. So this is sort of their way to try to have the next campaign around a social issue that concerns them in terms of gender and sexuality. From the Breitbart side, it's partly about the kind of truculent masculinity that they, or masculinism that their politics entails. Also, especially in terms of the bathrooms, the way that it's about protecting implicitly white women in public space sort of links up with white nationalist vigilante politics in some way. So there's a kind of paternalistic logic, especially to the anti-trans anti bathroom bills. It's a point of convergence for these different factions that are in the White House, but sort of more broadly within the conservative movement. Yeah, you started, ta you started talking about this, and I'd like to develop this more. Um, there are people who say, uh, people on the left who say, 
that this is a distraction. Uh, it's just to energize the base. It's not something that uh, is really uh, at the core of their agenda. To me, uh, these concerns about gender difference and hierarchy really are at the core of the conservative agenda. But could you lay out just how this relates to uh, the, the, the worldview behind this? Yeah, in terms of the the conservative agenda, um, I think it's fair to say that this is at the core. I mean, it, it links up with kind of conceptions of normative family life and gender and sexuality that are also present in um, or manifested through their opposition to women's reproductive autonomy and a kind of broader, there's a kind of broader, as I said, masculinist investment that a kind of opposition to trans life reflects and and kind of um, pushes forward. So yeah, I think that the conservative movement um, historically, or the the right, I guess you could say, has historically had an investment in what they see as um, traditional forms of family life. And that's a kind of euphemism for the authority of the father and husband, right? So this kind of patriarchal logic. And the family, of course, is a key site of gendering or place where gender norms and gender roles are kind of established and enforced. Parents regularly disown trans people. And generally, there are various restrictions on trans people forming families. Historically, this has been kind of more so than more recently. But even in parts of the world, including in Europe, um, trans people have to be sterilized um, in order to receive legal recognition. So There are various ways in which the family historically has been kind of hostile to trans existence. And I'd say that the defense of that kind of institution from feminist intervention is is a core part of the project of the right. I'm speaking with the historian Amanda Armstrong. Corey Robin, uh, in his writings on uh, and and, and, uh, as he talks about uh, the right, makes a big point out of the fact that a lot of the emotional appeal of right-wing politics, to men in particular, but not only men, um, is uh, the erosion of male authority in the, the household, in the family. Um, so you know, this really is something that matters very intensely to day-to-day life uh, to people on the right. I think that's right. And what I would say is that there is a kind of popular dimension to transphobia, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, which I think it sort of links up with or relates to the anxiety that parents have about the about their children's potential gender variance. It's a kind of like widespread sentiment that you can see in terms of the experience that trans people have when they come out um, in terms of their um, relation to their families. And so I think that that that's right, that this anti-trans politics of backlash um, is trying to tap into that those sort of sentiments on the part of especially um, parents. I remember when I had a very young child and uh, dressed him in uh, clothing that did not provide adequate gender cues for the masses. Um, we would sometimes get yelled at, uh, even on the, you know, the liberal Upper West Side of Manhattan, the archetypally liberal Upper West Side of Manhattan. This provokes anxiety. This kind of ambiguity provokes a lot of anxiety among even people who like to think of themselves as liberal and socially tolerant, right? I think that's right, yeah. 
And speaking of that, has there been any contribution to uh, this um, anti-trans backlash coming from the proverbial TERFs, the trans-exclusionary radical feminists? Uh, How important a factor is that uh, in this backlash? Right. Yeah, I think in the U.S., less than in other places, especially Britain. So to go back again to the um, anti-trans bathroom bills of 2016, there were at the time some kind of marginal groups claiming a feminist commitment that were formally aligned with the um, Christian right and that were um, involved in various lawsuits to try to prevent trans people from having access to public facilities. And to some extent, those lawsuits, for instance, give a little bit of cover to the argument that you see um, in these anti-trans mobilizations, especially starting in 2016, the argument that is that these reforms or these um, regressive policies are potentially going to defend the safety of women, right? So if you have some people identified as feminists kind of making that argument, it becomes more plausible, perhaps. But I think in terms of the driving force behind these moves, it's much more this kind of coming together of the kind of white nationalist Breitbart wing and the historic evangelicals, which of course are very much imbricated in or tied up with, they're involved in a kind of reaction to the civil rights movement. So we we should be clear about that as well. Now, there's some really stunning numbers on the levels of poverty and uh, of violence or victims of violence uh, among trans people. Uh, to people who be listening who might think this is not a terribly material concern, um, could you review some of those uh, statistics? Yeah, I don't know if I will be able to um, cite Uh, numbers, but certainly, and this is something that Fine and Laka has emphasized in their um, piece in Jacobin and and the Socialist Worker, that that the oppression of trans people is a social oppression. That is, we experience the denial of access to housing, rates of um, street violence and intimate partner violence at um, very high levels, job discrimination, uh, imprisonment, uh, poverty, these various metrics of um, social oppression at remarkably high levels. So certainly, insofar as the project of the left is about the realization of social equality, the social oppression of trans people should be of central concern. Um, And I think the question then becomes sort of on what basis are coalitions or broader political demands and projects found and articulated that will advance the interests of trans people in a broader context of advancing sort of social and economic transformation um, in the interests of the working classes and and other oppressed communities. You've done academic work in the relation uh, between uh, trans issues and the labor movement. Uh, Give give us the the summary of what that's all about. My most direct um, work along these lines is, is kind of organizing work. So When I was a graduate student at the University of California, I was involved in um, UAW 2865, the union representing um, graduate uh, TAs. And in our 2013-14 contract campaign, one of the demands that we were um, pushing was for a right to access to all gender bathrooms um, within a reasonable distance of the workspace. So this is a, a kind of demand that 
is meant to address the forms of transphobic, transphobic violence and harassment that trans people face at work. Um, and the goal was to sort of articulate this reform or this demand um, as part of a larger contract campaign um, where we were pushing around obviously wages and health benefits, um, issues affecting student parents and undocumented student workers. And we were able to win on the broad range of those issues. So I think that was an example of an effort to kind of move within the context of labor organizing to um, advance the interests of trans people as part of a broader project of, of social transformation or kind of advancing the interests of working class and oppressed groups. And now people who are not trans, what can we do uh, in solidarity to help? Because this is, you know, I just part, there's so much appalling stuff going down right now that it's hard to um, know what to do or where to start or what to think. But uh, help us out. What can we do? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I know that there are protests popping up. There's one in New York this evening. This is Monday the 29th. But so certainly showing um, support and solidarity against this regressive anti-trans um, initiative um, in the streets is key. And then insofar as people are involved in unions or um, tenants organizations or um, these sort of organs of working class struggle, the goal would be to find ways to advance the interests of trans and um, more broadly gender non-conforming people um, who are sort of part of that institution, who live in that building or work in that workplace or, or um, who could live in that building or work in that workplace to sort of find ways to advance the interests of um, trans people in that context so that we're kind of building a sense of solidarity and a sense of shared, a shared fate in these very tangible ways um, between trans and non-trans people and communities. That was Amanda Armstrong, an assistant professor of history at Fordham. I apologize for putting her on the spot, asking her to cite statistics on poverty and violence. Not everyone shares my number fetish. Here are some from a 2015 survey of almost 28,000 trans people sponsored by the National Center for Transgender Equality. Nearly a third of trans people are in poverty, more than twice the national average. The same share has been homeless for some time in their life, and 12% have been homeless in the previous year. Poverty, as you might expect, is considerably worse among trans people of color, with poverty rates over 40%. One in six reported losing a job because of their gender identity. The unemployment rate among trans people was three times the national average at the time. Almost 40% had experienced severe psychological distress in the year before the survey, eight times the national average. The same share of attempted suicide at some time in their lives more than eight times as much as the broad population. One in ten was the target of violent attack by a family member. Nearly half reported harassment in the previous year, and one in ten had been physically attacked. Almost half had been sexually assaulted at some point in their lives. Still, not all the survey's findings were awful. More than half, 60%, reported their families being supportive, although almost one in ten had gotten kicked out of the house. More than two-thirds reported their co-workers as supportive. Trump's actions, however, will be the enemy of such progress. For more, Google USTS 2015. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
That was the second of eight piano pieces, Opus 8, by the German composer Hans Eisler, performed by Matt Rubenstein. Eisler was a communist driven out of Germany by the Nazis. He came to the U.S. in 1938, where he was granted asylum, but he was hounded out of this country during the McCarthy years and was deported in 1948. In Berlin on November 11th, Rubenstein is performing a selection of piano music, as he puts it, by composers from five different countries run by fascist governments, all written during the Second World War. Eisler is among them. Next, Brazil. Alfredo Sadfilo was on this show a few weeks ago to discuss the imminent election of a far-right character named Jair Bolsonaro as president. Bolsonaro won that election a few days ago, adding to the heavy dose of grim news in this world. From 2003 to 16, Brazil was governed by the Workers' Party, a social democratic party that was long led by Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva, universally known as Lula. He served as president from 2003 to 2011, when he was succeeded by Dilma Rousseff. She was, it's no exaggeration to say, overthrown by a soft coup led by right-wing forces in the National Congress in August 2016. Lula was imprisoned on trumped-up corruption charges in April of this year. Rousseff was succeeded by her vice president, Michel Temer, a colorless right-winger with a disapproval rating of 82%. Replacing him will be Bolsonaro come January. Here's Alfredo Sadfilo, a professor of political economy at the School for Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, to explain. Well, we can't say this was a surprise. It had been anticipated for quite a few weeks now, but uh, still, how does it feel? I'm a little embarrassed to begin with such a subjective question, but it's uh, quite a shocker, isn't it? It is a big shock. It is a big shock in several uh, ways, including because it was predicted recently, but the rise of Bolsonaro is uh, a phenomenon of the past three months or so. Before then, there was a, a wide variety of candidates um, across the whole spectrum from center-left to the right. And there was an attempt that reminds one of what happened in the Republican Party of, in the United States when Donald Trump was bidding for the presidency. A gradual elimination of one potential contender after another. Now, in this case, they were all candidates in the election from different parties and different uh, coalitions, but they did not manage to find mass attraction. And one candidate after another would not rise in the opinion polls. And the media and the mainstream right, the center right, were betting on one after the other in sequence, and none of them would find mass traction. And eventually, they all settled for Bolsonaro. The media, the um, in industrial uh, federations, the big capitalists of Brazil, all of them 
uh, and the mid upper middle classes and a large parcel of the uh, evangelical churches and informal workers. They converged around Bolsonaro in the final weeks of the campaign and by exclusion because nobody else had shown the possibility of beating the Workers' Party, the PT, in the elections of themselves. So Bolsonaro was very, very much a last resort, and it was a terrible choice because he is inexperienced, uh, unable to hold together uh, a large coalition uh, of interests, and incapable, as far as uh, we can tell at this point, of uh, maneuvering the Brazilian political system that is very complex and very decentralized. So the prospects for Bolsonaro administration are of great turbulence and turmoil uh, in profound instability uh, at the same time. Brazilian friends and relatives tell me they've been surprised to learn that members of their own family, uh, who otherwise seem decent and even liberal in temperament, uh, had voted for Bolsonaro. Do you, do you uh, think that's a widespread phenomenon? I think it is widespread, yes. Um, if you look um, first at the distribution of votes, Bolsonaro won in most urban areas uh, in the country and across uh, the segment of uh, higher incomes and uh, more years of education, Bolsonaro won with a great uh, majority in those segments. In a large number of urban areas, Bolsonaro captured 70% uh, of the votes. And the PT uh, candidate won primarily in small towns and in rural areas and amongst the poorest and most disorganized uh, strata of the population. So for someone who is uh, in the middle class, lives in an urban area, you're very, very likely to have a lot of people uh, that you know and family members who will have voted for Bolsonaro. And uh, the, the media and, and social media have re reported extensively uh, family divisions, uh, profound family divisions, family fights uh, between people who uh, would vote for different uh, candidates. It was a very, very polarized election in a way that Brazil has not seen, I think, ever uh, before. There have been polarized elections in Brazil before, but not to this extent. Now, when people talk about the Trump base, it can be a confusing thing because, you know, there are at least three kinds of people who voted for Trump, like traditional Republicans who just want tax cuts, disaffected people who just wanted to f give the middle finger to the system, and, you know, outright reactionaries and lunatics and fascists. Uh, is there something similar in the Bolsonaro vote? There is something similar, but I think the base is slightly uh, distinct. I think Bolsonaro brought together different segments of the population. I have already mentioned that his support was involved a cross-section of society. He supported capital, supported the upper middle class, support of some former workers, but I uh, suspect not that many, but uh, significant support amongst the disorganized informal workers. And he managed to do this partly by chance. He was the candidate with the best uh, set of, that in, had the best set of circumstances to bring all these uh, sources of support together. Because he pretended to be the outsider, even though Bolsonaro has been a federal deputy for 28 years, uh, because he was so lonely and so marginalized and nobody took him very seriously, he could pretend to be the outsider who is coming with a clean uh, slate. Uh, he doesn't owe anything to anybody. 
and he can be the candidate who will put things right uh, in Brazil. This is, to some extent, similar to Trump, except Bolsonaro was a politician before. Then Bolsonaro captured the moment in the sense that the Brazilian political system is profoundly damaged by uh, allegations of corruption and by the anti-corruption campaign that has been unleashed by the judiciary and the media about five years ago with a deliberate intent of targeting the PT, the Workers' Party, using lawfare and accusations of corruption to persecute uh, first Dilma Rousseff, who was president and was then impeached in 2016, and subsequently former President Lula, who was imprisoned and is currently in jail uh, for 12 years. So Bolsonaro, being the outsider, captured this moment saying, I am the only candidate who is not corrupt. I'm the only candidate who is not involved in schemes of corruption uh, in Brazil. Then he captured the conservative vote. But it's a conservative vote, not necessarily just a political vote, but it's a vote that is connected to the evangelical churches. There is a large number of evangelical churches in Brazil. Um, those churches have captured an enormous number of uh, faithful uh, in the country. Brazil, 30 years ago, was a Catholic uh, nation, the vast majority. Today, it is no longer uh, that. And many of those evangelical churches are very fragmented. Many of them are very, very right-wing, uh, and they converge around issues of public morality. They converge around uh, the fact that they are all uniformly, strongly against any form of abortion. Um, and Brazil has very rigid laws about that, but they want to make sure that those laws continue to be in place. Um, issues are, of public morality around uh, homosexuality very, very um, strongly came up, very, very strongly in the campaign. Uh, and issues of the, well, the sanctity of the family, the marriage, the family as a unity of a man and a woman, etc., so they came down very, very strongly uh, there, and that resonated with a large mass uh, of people. And then uh, urban violence, another major issue that Bolsonaro uh, could thrive on. Brazil is a very violent society. Last year, there were 60,000 uh, murders uh, in Brazil, of which 5,000 were perpetrated by, the, by police forces. Now, Brazil is a very violent country, and the fear of violence is very, very prevalent across uh, society. It affects mainly the poor, uh, and while the rich, they watch violence on television. There are TV programs that are dedicated to violence, and they beam on your living room every day the crimes uh, of the day. And the more grisly the murder, the better for the audience. So that creates an atmosphere where... People across society, except for the very rich, who can always protect themselves, but across society, people feel afraid and define themselves by being uh, afraid. And Bolsonaro, being a former military officer, promised big, easy promises about guns uh, and about protecting people by using the uh, state uh, violence. And he did this with great success. He seemed to be, again, the outsider, the person who is not corrupt, who talks sense in simple language and who presents common sense solutions to difficult uh, social problems. So there is a lot of violence, just kill the criminals. That's what you do, right? So there is a problem of drugs, kill the drug traffickers. That's, again, the simple solution that Bolsonaro uh, was offering. And that has mass appeal because complex solutions are difficult to explain 
and that very difficult to argue for, and they can always hedge, and the policy is complex, etc. Bolsonaro cuts through uh, all the complexity, but the problem evidently is that the real world is complex. So Bolsonaro's promises will clash against the complexity of reality, but this will be only later. He has already been elected uh, on the basis of simplicity. Let's see how he deals with the real world. I'm speaking with the political economist Alfredo Sadfilo. Some of the commentary coming from the left has uh, emphasized uh, the um, culpability of the, the Workers' Party in producing this outcome. That is, they were deeply corrupt and uh, too uh, complicit with neoliberalism, uh, that they were, uh, their reformism was too soft, uh, they didn't really push a more radical agenda, and uh, couldn't win over a large part of the populace for this reason, and left a lot of resentment behind. Uh, how culpable is the PT in this story? The PT... Uh, could and should have done more for their core constituency uh, of the uh, organized uh, working class. They could and should have compromised less with neoliberalism. They could and should have imposed a reform of the media. They should have um, transformed the legislation around the financing of political parties. They should have relied more on small donations by their membership uh, and the militants of the party and less on big donations by large companies that evidently would only come uh, in exchange for favors. The Brazilian political system, uh, the way it is built, it is intrinsically corrupt. Now, corruption has been the way in which the Brazilian state has functioned for 500 years. Um, and it continues to be the case. Now, the political system that exists now, that was built after the transition to democracy 30 years ago, there's ample freedom to create political parties, and there are many political parties around. In this Congress that has been elected this month, there are 30 political parties uh, represented, none with more than 15% uh, of the lower chamber. So... It is a fragmented uh, system with a president that is elected in two rounds, like the French system. So the president gets to power with tremendous legitimacy uh, in the eyes of public opinion and with the compulsion to deliver on his or her program. But they do not have, by construction, a majority in Congress. So the way to build that majority and to be able to move legislation through Congress uh, is to exchange favors. So the system is corrupt at the point of financing the political parties, and it is corrupt at the point of passing the laws. And at a further level, if you want to build those coalitions, you, the president, you need to bring in allies and distribute the ministries between different political parties. And the ministries are interesting for the parties only in the sense, and for the individuals, only in the sense that they command resources and that they can allocate those resources more or less at will and then favor their own uh, agendas, favor their own people. If you're not going to do this, you cannot govern. And this was one of the challenges that former President Dilma Rousseff had. She was a scrupulously honest uh, president who tried to govern according to the laws of decency and according to a a particular political program. And that does not work. She was initially despised by uh, members of Congress and then hated by them because she was not open for business. Now, Bolsonaro comes in and he 
uh, claims that he will not be corrupt and that his government will be clean and that he will give uh, initially the majority of ministries to the military and now he's backtracking on, on that one. He needs that currency in order to build coalitions that will support his program in Congress. Now, Bolsonaro will have an easier ride than Dilma Rousseff did because the Congress that has been elected now is the most right-wing Congress in modern Brazilian history. Two-thirds of the uh, members of Congress are on the far right. It's not just the right, it's on the far right. So that worldview will tend to converge with Bolsonaro's worldview, and so he can expect some, um, uh, some support there. Bolsonaro can also count on the at least implicit support of the judiciary that has been very, very closely aligned with, uh, with the right. But that is at the level of big uh, programs and ideologies. On the day-to-day of individual legis- pieces of legislation navigating through committees in Congress, that requires a level of understanding of the rules of politics that Bolsonaro does not have. And he does not have the experience or the talent to negotiate with a very powerful but also deeply fractured uh, Congress. So again, I expect political instability uh, in Brazil after an initial period of honeymoon when Bolsonaro is going to try and steamroll as much as he can of his own uh, program to try and make uh, irreversible uh, reforms. But we will see in a matter of months uh, instability building up in the system with, again, unpredictable consequences for Bolsonaro himself and for the Brazilian political system. One of the more appalling aspects of Trump has been the way he's been able to whip up the worst uh, elements in American society to uh, levels of uh, frightening rage and violence. Uh, Do you see Bolsonaro doing the same? He's already got that process going, right? He has got that process going. The uh, presidential campaign was the most violent campaign uh, in modern Brazilian history. There were several... Uh, killings. Uh, there were uh, beatings uh, on the streets, um, and there was a level of violence and intimidation that is abnormal by uh, Brazilian um, by Brazilian standards, and that is in a uh, in a violent uh, society. Um, subsequently to the election, uh, there have been reports, um, a large number of reports in the media of uh, intimidation, of shootings, uh, of uh, behavior that is meant to be uh, aggressive uh, towards uh, the left uh, and of a large number of uh, threats uh, being issued. Bolsonaro has done nothing to contain that. Now, will this degenerate into growing levels of uh, violence, some of it it random, some of it targeted? Uh, This is possible. Will the police and the judicial system be in a position to contain that? Well, in principle, they are in a position to contain it. But so far, they have demonstrated no inclination to do so. So it is perfectly plausible, and sections of the Brazilian left are expecting uh, an escalation of uh, repression and intimidation and violence against social movements, uh, political parties of the left, and ultimately anyone walking on the streets with a red T-shirt. There's been random acts of violence against people wearing red uh, on the street. Or alternatively... Bolsonaro might want to play the role of great state and try to bring people, his people under control and then um, try to heal uh, the country. 
my impression is that he's not able to do this, and he's not willing to do this either. He tries on the politics of hatred, and my uh, impression is that he will try to govern in this way. A little bit looking at Donald Trump, but in a more, in an even more grotesque um, uh, way, in an even more crass uh, manner, uh, in a society that is uh, more violent than uh, even than U.S. Uh, society. So again, the prospects for the left, for social movements, and prospects for dissent are not are not good. The tendency will be of growing levels of violence uh, on the streets. I'm speaking with the political economist Alfredo Sadfilo. People throw around the word fascism a lot now, uh, and uh, if anybody deserves that label, it seems like Bolsonaro certainly does. But the contrast with the fascist movements of the 30s, they're not the organized militias, they're not the parties, uh, there's not the detailed ideology to go along with it. Uh, how valid is that analogy? How seriously should we take it? This is not classic fascism, because as you said, um, the rise of leaders like Bolsonaro, but then there's a large number of other leaders uh, around the world at this point in time, they are not rising on the back of an organized mass movement, much less on the back of organized militias that are confronting against a large movement from the other side, uh, specifically uh, communism. There, There is no such opposition today. The authoritarian leaders that have risen Um, in uh, our recent period since the global crisis started in 2008, these authoritarian leaders, including Bolsonaro, they have risen uh, mostly through the manipulation of the media. They've risen through the use of economic resources and economic clout to buy elections. Uh, They have uh, risen by tricking the voters, presenting to them a nationalist program, a dissenting program, to promising to do something different from the, uh, what existed before, that they do not identify, but it's very clearly that they are selling the idea that they will confront neoliberalism and they will do a different kind of politics that cares about the little, uh, the little guy, the little girl, cares about them, looks at their interests, looks at their job prospects, is sensitized to the fact that globalization, financialization have led to massive losses for large uh, strata uh, of the population. And the leader, this person who is detached from the uh, day-to-day of common politics and comes from the outside, this leader will, by force of will, uh, change the realities uh, for people in terms of their jobs and their life prospects. And people understandably under stress, under economic and political and social stress, and that solution seems uh, appealing uh, to them. That's very different from the problems of fascism uh, and the solutions that fascism provided uh, back in the the, the 1930s. But these leaders cannot do that. They can't do that today because they are committed to neoliberalism. So you vote against neoliberalism and you get an intensified version of neoliberalism plus violence, plus state arbitrariness, plus the steamrolling of all forms of opposition. In my uh, understanding, this is a very unstable situation that will slide. It is not possible to maintain this type of leader in power, promising to do one thing, selling a particular image on the back of money and and economic resources, and then delivering exactly the opposite. So I don't think this political configuration that we see today uh, can remain in place for, uh, for, for very long. 
Over the last month or so, Brazilian stocks are up about 20%. Uh, Mexican stocks are down about 20% as they uh, anticipate AMLO's inauguration. But do you think that these uh, big capital in Brazil, which is uh, anticipating uh, something of a windfall from this new government, are they going to get what they're anticipating? That is plausible. Um, the Temer administration that has been in power since 2016, after Dilma Rousseff was overthrown, uh, has managed to uh, roll back uh, labor protections uh, and impose a cap on the fiscal budget to uh, stop uh, the possibility of state intervention uh, in the uh, economy and stop the possibility of industrial policy. Bolsonaro has one big thing that he wants to achieve and is possible to achieve rapidly, which is the reform of the social security system. Now, this Temer tried for two years and could not get it past Congress because it's, it's very, very polemical and creates massive losses for the workers and for pensioners. Uh, Bolsonaro has promised to push this forward, and capital is counting on that. So there's a massive windfall uh, for capital reduction of costs, and, and the cost of the entire Social Security system would decline significantly uh, in that case. Um, capital is also betting that Bolsonaro will relax the uh, gun control uh, legislations. It's, it's betting that Bolsonaro will uh, privatize large chunks uh, of the state assets. So they're expecting to make a killing buying assets, uh, state assets uh, very, very cheaply. So there, there is anticipation that some areas, in some areas of the economy there will be significant profits uh, to, be, uh, to be made. And in general, a much more uh, conducive uh, environment for business. The economic policies that Bolsonaro has been pointing towards through his Minister of Finance, the coming Minister of Finance, Paulo Guedes, uh, are the same policies as those, those that were implemented in Chile under General Pinochet. Paulo Guedes is a Chicago boy. Paulo Guedes was involved uh, with the uh, Chilean administration under Pinochet. So capital can see those uh, signs, signs of a much more uh, favorable uh, context for economic policy uh, in Brazil in the period to come. Will it be possible to deliver? I think it's very unlikely. There is no engine for the Brazilian economy at this point in time. The main engine uh, traditionally uh, has been the external uh, engine. But the global economy is likely to grow less rapidly in the coming period. Uh, China is growing uh, more and more slowly. Brazil has no significant uh, markets to open uh, abroad. The economy depends heavily on the export of primary uh, commodities. Uh, domestic investment has contracted. Uh, public um, sector spending is limited uh, by the Temer administration and its fiscal uh, policy reforms. Um, households are highly indebted in trying to pay off their debts, and uh, the level of unemployment is very high. So there may be a bubble connected to privatization or foreign investment coming into the country, but I expect this bubble to be relatively uh, short-lived. I don't see any prospect of sustained rapid growth in Brazil uh, at this point in time. And finally, uh, the left. Is there anything like an organization or uh, a strategy or a, an agenda to uh, fight Bolsonaro, or uh, is that a vacuum? The left has been uh, developing an agenda to fight Bolsonaro. In general, the Brazilian left uh, campaigned very bravely and very strongly. Uh, it is of uh, interest that they achieved 45% of the vote on the back of the left wing alone. It was not possible, it turned out, to bring onto the camp of the left in support of the candidate, uh, Fernando Haddad, 
anybody of any significance uh, from the center. Now, that may be because the image of the PT has been badly corroded by its years in power, because the PT tends to adopt uh, an attitude of monopolizing uh, the, the, the field and demanding uh, that unquestioning support from other political forces, and it's not, the PT is not very good at making coalitions uh, in its campaigns. But the fact is that the left was isolated, and it still managed to achieve 45% uh, of the votes, which is uh, fantastic. But it doesn't have a clear program. And the candidate, Fernando Haddad, did not have a very clear program in this uh, election. He was selling an image of the return to the past under Lula. It's not clear how we get there. Uh, he was selling an image of being a candidate of uh, civility and constitutional democracy and political uh, freedom and respect, uh, in contrast with Bolsonaro's absolutely right-wing and, and unacceptable uh, statements in his whole uh, campaign. But what the left was doing is not a political program, and it's not clear how the left is going to uh, develop a political program that is appealing to large numbers of people, that keeps the country uh, together, that makes the left, the left electable, and that allows it to govern in a transformative way, much more than what was possible uh, under Lula and under Dilma Rousseff. We're not at that point yet. That was Alfredo Saadfilo, a professor of political economy at the School for Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Class War, the 1977 song from the Dills in a new cover version by Ty Siegel. The music is rather folkier than usual for me, but I like the sentiments. Till next week, bye.